This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. My parents constantly tell me that I'm on my phone too much, on the internet in general too much. I just do it automatically, so I have to force myself to stop. It's a horribly easy distraction. My phone's gotten... There it goes. Oh, my phone's gotten in the way of what I'm doing. There's been a lot of talk lately about internet addictions. People who just cannot get off being online. And it may not necessarily be all their fault because there are built-in mechanisms. People don't like to really talk about this. That are actually working in the digital background that contributes to you staying on the same site for hours upon hours and wanting to go back when you're not there. These are carefully crafted secret techniques that we're going to expose here in this Commando On Demand podcast. And they're used by web designers and big tech companies to keep you engaged. This has nothing to do with, say, a clickbait photograph that keeps you gazing for a while or makes you click a link. I'm talking about a specific tactic that compels you. Actually, it tricks you into clicking on a site that you never really intended to visit and then hanging out there. Once you do get there... Think about Instagram, for example, or Facebook. You may scroll for minutes and minutes, but then suddenly it's hours and hours. You get so lost being on this website that you completely forget why you even were there in the first place. In the tech industry, there's a term for this. It's called dark patterns. These are really dangerous rabbit trails that can lead you into a hole. They just suck you in. And web designers and tech companies, they are using them more than you might even imagine. They need you to click, to scroll, to hunt, to engage, to buy, so that this way you stay on their site, no one else's site, and they make money. There is actually an acronym that explains all this. You may see it written up online somewhere. They call themselves UX engineers and UX firms. UX stands for user experience. Sounds like something that would be really fabulous. We want our users to have this great experience. Yes, they do want you to have great experience, but maybe they just need you to hang out there a little bit more so they're going to be playing psychological games to keep you there. Doug Collins is a UX engineer. He's actually the CEO of a UX firm. In this podcast, he's going to disclose some of the unethical ways that websites keep you hooked and keep you clicking. And if you think that you know every web trick in the book, just wait. You don't know this stuff. Doug knows them all. And maybe you're addicted to the Internet, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. Or maybe somebody you know just can't put their phone down. Later on, we're going to talk about how this addiction happens in the first place, what you can do to break free, how to spot the signs. I'm Kim Commando, America's Digital Pro. And before we get to all of this, a quick thank you to our partners who make these Commando On Demand podcasts possible. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. 
Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. All right, we're just going to dive right into this podcast. I have to introduce you to Doug Collins. He's a UX designer for E-Trade. But for the purposes of this interview, he will not be representing E-Trade. That's really important. He's going to be speaking as a UX designer and a consultant for his own company in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Doug, thanks for being on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kim, for having me. I appreciate it. It's a great day to be here. Hey, easy for you to say. You have cool weather. You guys are so lucky. I think today in Phoenix, oh, I don't know, 116 degrees or something like that. Oh, my goodness. You couldn't ask for anything better. All right. Real quick, Doug. We've been talking about the user experience and UX, but not everybody knows exactly what UX means. So here at the beginning of the podcast, can you explain that for us? Yeah. User experience is really the practice of making the Internet in general easier and more user-friendly. It's about understanding and having empathy for what users want to do and trying to make that just as easy as possible for them. As UX practitioners, that's what our main goal is, is to make your world a better place to live. Okay, so in some people's world, they say it would be a better place if, oh, I don't know, there were no pop-up ads, right? <laughs> well, it's not always avoiding pop-ups. The pop-ups have their place. It's about using the right tools at the right time and understanding what the customer or, or client is trying to do and making that as simple as possible. Sometimes that might mean a pop-up, but a lot of times it doesn't. Okay, over at commando.com, we offer people content that we think they would be interested in. And because a lot of our fans and readers and listeners, they come to the website to do research, we have this huge library of resources. So my job, the team's job, is to make sure that anybody who comes to the website has easy access to all of it. So that's my definition of a great experience. What's yours, Doug? A great experience is one that leaves them happy and satisfied with the experience that they just had. It makes them want to come back for more. It's all about building brand loyalty, trust, satisfaction, and that knowledge that when you come someplace, those, those people are going to understand what you want to do and make it just as easy as possible for you. You know, that's it right there. That's why we all get repeat visitors to a website. They visit the site. They get what they want. Sometimes a little bit more. They don't get hassled. So they do come back. But there's this dark side of the user experience that, I don't know, it can just lure people into a trap. They're called dark patterns. And more often than not, from all the research that I've seen about this, the designers actually embed these dark patterns right into the design. And sometimes the company doesn't even know that dark patterns are even there. So take us a little bit behind the scenes, Doug. Yeah, dark patterns are essentially any sort of trick that a website might use in order to get you roped into doing something that you wouldn't otherwise do. This can be things like uh, forcing you to sign up for a service and then silently charging your credit card after they said that the initial month would be free and sneaking those charges onto your credit account. It can be making switches or, or copy confusing or hidden or even sometimes disabling functionality and, and making it look like it's there so that you're actually doing something when you're not. There are a lot of different tricks that websites can use. There's got to be a ton of common tricks out there. Give us just a few examples. Some of the tricks that you'll see out there will be things like a forced continuity, which is kind of what we just talked about, where if you have a free service, anytime you're signing up for something free, always look to see if there's a checkbox or a switch that says, I'm 
signing up and I'm okay with understanding that I'm going to be charged after the end of the free service. Because a lot of times they'll make it easy for you to sign up uh, and very difficult to get out of. Okay, so we're super excited to sign up for something. I mean, who actually wants to read the entire agreement? We just want to click and move on, right? That's what Dark Patterns really focus on is our want to not really read a website from top to bottom, but it's more about scanning. Uh, Most people, when you actually present them with the website, won't read every word on the page. What they will do is they'll start at the top, um, kind of scan through things, look for what they see to be the key pieces. So, you know, really the big thing is whenever you're spending money or have the potential to spend money, take the time, do the reading, and especially if something seems hidden or is in a different text color, smaller font, absolutely read that because more often than not, that's where they're trying to sneak something by you. Okay, one of my personal pet peeves is when I click a button on a site and it takes me to a completely different site. It's designed to look like part of the website that I'm actually on, but it's actually, I don't know, an advertisement for something. Is there any way to tell by like the font of a button or anything else that it's about to be a booby trap? The biggest thing is that a font will be a little bit lighter than other fonts that you might see out there. So you might especially see some light gray usage or even a font that's close to the background color, whatever that might be. And that's why you have to be kind of careful. A lot of times you'll you'll see this sort of with sites where you might be going to download something where they'll have a fake download button. You know, that's certainly a dark pattern, a fake download button as an advertisement. You'll see that a lot of times uh, just in sort of hidden buttons and tricks. Advertisers are becoming increasingly good and increasingly capable of making advertisements look like buttons or links on their site. So you can see that sometimes when you're scrolling through and you think, okay, well, this button must be related to the site, so I'm going to go ahead and click it, and then it takes you someplace else. So you really have to be careful. A lot of sites are trying to counter this by putting a little advertisement or ad disclaimer above or below it. But it's usually, again, a lighter color and and a smaller text piece. So you really have to be careful. You know, we can't stress enough the importance of before you click something, take a look around and make sure that you're in the right spot and go into the right place. And, and certainly that's just one way that they can go about getting you, but that's one of the most common ways. I've always been fascinated by infinite scrolling. From a UX design perspective, the goal seems obvious. I mean, we need people to just keep scrolling more and more and more. It's kind of like that fear of missing out. But is there something to it that we haven't really covered? So infinite scrolling is kind of a way that websites like Facebook or Reddit will hook you in and that they try and get you interested in a piece of content and spread just enough advertising around in order to make it useful for them from an advertising perspective, but to keep you coming back. You know, that's why we have things like upvotes and like buttons. Is that they keep you engaged and they keep you wanting to participate. When we actually click a like button on Facebook or an upvote button on Reddit, or when we post our own content, we see our own likes out there, you know, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we actually get a small little boost of dopamine going into our system, which is a chemical that's responsible for making us all happy and, and feel good. It's kind of the feel-good chemical. But as we do that, you know, it's, it's a good feeling. That's what keeps us going. And infinite scrolling is kind of a, a dark pattern because it does keep roping you into thinking, okay, maybe there'll be more for me to see, and that dopamine kind of builds and builds and builds. Uh, and, and if you don't actually get that, you can actually start to feel a little down and a little depressed. There's no doubt that social media can be depressing if you let it get to you. So joining us on this podcast is Dr. Ryan Montaya. He's a family medicine physician. He specializes in addiction, particularly opioid narcotics. He's also a former technology analyst. So let's just say he's no stranger to this whole digital lifestyle. 
Doctor, welcome to the discussion. Thank you so much. Dr. Montoya, I'm sure you've seen this in your practice, and you were just saying how long people spend on Facebook. Anything you want to add to that? Facebook didn't invent procrastination, but they have developed a lot of tools to keep people on their platform longer and longer, from their push for you to post anything about your life to the development of their new algorithm for your newsfeed. Every single element they've designed was designed to bring you in and make it difficult to leave. There's actually a very interesting new profile that was just posted on The Atlantic. It's uh, an excerpt from a book that talked to some of the original Facebook developers. They're being interviewed about what their original mission was with the company. And they said that they didn't really care what users said when they simply could watch what they did. I found that a very chilling quote. Um, but basically what they're saying is this information, what you do online, where you click, what you comment on, became their entire business model because these behaviors were data that could be mined and sold to companies. Or in the case of Cambridge Analytica, uh, it could be sold to election campaigns. That is a really interesting quote from the original Facebook developers. And it's actually kind of sad because... I think people are looking to Facebook to find happiness and meaning in life. And so often people are just bored and they go on Facebook. So what they're actually doing is exploiting people's desire to connect and then playing with all those emotions that I guess you'd say go along with it. I think it's less about the happiness and feeling in life and more about the connection. Facebook in particular has survived because it was originally a website that was allowing people to build connections between each other, allowing us to see what each other was up to, allowing us to see images and pictures and videos of, uh, you know, our friends and family. And slowly it got more and more away from that as they introduced advertising. You know, more political groups started to come onto it and eventually started to be used for fairly nefarious purposes. So it's less about trying to find meaning in life and more about trying to find that connection. Unfortunately, that connection can be used against us really pretty easily. And even though it doesn't work in the long run, some companies will go to any extreme to get you to click. It's unfortunate that they resort to these because they really don't have the long-term effects that they think that they do. Um, While they might see some short-term gains in terms of some conversion rates and and some extra money, a lot of times it's really damaging to their long-term reputation. Oh, I have to tell you this. I saw that you tweeted about an app that actually has a fake piece of hair on the design. Um, What is all that about? Whenever you're on your phone and you might see, oh, I've got a hair or a speck of dust on there, your your first instinct is to what? Wipe it off, right? This particular advertisement actually put a hair on the advertisement. So it looked like that there was a hair on your phone screen. So you would go to swipe it off and you'd actually either, you know, click or swipe on the advertisement and, you know, be taken to wherever that advertisement was leading you to. So that was a a super underhanded trick, one I was not a huge fan of. (laughs) But, you know, it's important, and and you say that I put this on our website, it's important that we call this out. It's important that we call out the people that that do these things. I try and do a good job of that and make sure that when someone uses one of these dark patterns, that the world as a whole, as far as I can reach it, knows about it. Also, darkpatterns.org, which is kind of the original dark pattern site run by Harry Brignall, is a great resource to go and look at these. They actually have a hall of shame there where you can go and see a wide variety of the different types of dark patterns people will use. Well, I certainly appreciate another fellow watchdog when it comes to warning people about dark patterns. Um, You actually have a really nice website. It's clean. It's pleasing. I love the blue color. Of course, you didn't really use commando blue, but we'll just let you use it. And that photo of Denver, love to be there. (laughs) Well, thank you. 
very much. I appreciate it. For anybody that wants to learn more about dark patterns, I would love for you to drop by. I offer classes on Skillshare that you can find links to that talk about design for accessibility, people with disabilities. If you're looking to get started with you know, making your website easier for your users, making your users buy into your brand loyalty and, and kind of understanding what makes them tick so you can make their life easier, I would love to hear from you and I'd be happy to help you get started. And you can find links to my Twitter account and LinkedIn and that sort of thing where I talk about UX every day. Thanks, Doug. And then next time I get to Denver, I think I'll buy you lunch. How about that? <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground so far on this podcast. I mean, what are the issues with internet addiction? How does it pop up? How does a user experience contribute to all that? Well, stay right where you are because still to come in this podcast, some really important information about what you can do about it and how you can get your life back. It's kind of nice when you can just kind of go on your phone and post a photo and see that this many people are liking it. And it feels good. It hits like deeper than it is just like the likes. Even if I didn't have anything that I could think of in my mind that was like definitely I didn't want them to see, there's still always just that idea of like maybe there's a picture way back in my history that I took that I don't want anyone to see. Being like constantly aware of the fact that I want to spend less time on my phone and continuing to spend the same amount of time on my phone makes it feel like I'm like very much addicted to my phone. Now that you know about dark patterns, let's talk about the darkness that it can actually lead to. Did you know that the WHO recently recognized gaming disorders as a mental health issue? You see, internet addiction is real. But let's again focus on the mental and psychological contributors to this addiction. Because you have dark patterns in the actual addiction. They go hand in hand. Okay, so back to you, Dr. Now, through all the research I did, I always like to find some fun facts about folks that we're interviewing on these podcasts. One thing that really surprised me about you is aside from all your specialties and your degrees and everything like that, you're also a comic book artist? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. So when you're analyzing a patient, how do you determine if it's a true internet addiction or if that person just, say, is just online just a little too much? There isn't a hard or fast definition for addiction, but when we do screen for addiction, we like to ask the patient a few things. One, is the patient exhibiting an increased tolerance for the substance? In other words, does the patient require more and more of the substance to experience the desired effect? Two, is the substance getting in the way of the patient's personal or professional life? Is it causing them to perform poorly at work or to miss personal obligations? Three, does the patient exhibit withdrawal symptoms when they stop using the substance? So do they crave the substance or have physiologically negative responses when they aren't using the substance? What about technology? Are there some signs? What should we be actually watching out for? In the context of technology, this might manifest as overuse of the technology that makes you late or less productive, maybe spend less time with family or friends, or even use technology in lieu of forming new live social relationships. I'm thinking a tech addict might not be able to concentrate when not having ready access to their phone. Okay, now there's Dr. David Greenfield in this podcast. He's the founder of the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction. Dr. Greenfeld has treated patients from all over the United States with abuse issues from video game and porn and tech dependency. He's recognized as this world leader in the area of process and behavioral addictions. He wrote a landmark book which woke up the American public to this big internet addiction problem. 
The book is called Virtual Addiction. So, Dr. Greenfield, what are the primary fallouts you see in people with Internet addiction? I see tremendous disruption in people's lives from technology addiction, mostly in the form of broken relationships, work dysfunction, huge problems with academic behavior and academic performance, and then in many cases, legal problems because people are doing things online that are illegal and that get them into trouble, particularly in the areas of sex. Porn addiction is a huge issue. I get questions about that on my show from time to time. But let's cover that in another podcast. So let's talk about what makes interaction on the Internet so appealing, like gaming, for instance. There's something about the focus and the narrowing of that focus that makes the Internet, the computer, and video games very attractive. And they can sit still for hours playing these games, whereas in other formats, they are not able to sit still. But I think something even more addicting than possibly video games It's social media. It just seems to grip and hold people no matter how old or how young they are. Dr. Montoya, do you have anything you want to chime in about with that? So Facebook is a fantastic example. Just some numbers. The the latest estimates are that people check their phone something like 2,600 times a day, and they spend at least 225 minutes online. Facebook's own internal estimates are that the average U.S. user spends just over an hour on Facebook per day, like you said. Um, That is a huge amount of time. I know some people who post 10, 20 times a day. They're constantly posting, constantly checking for likes and their identities and their mood. It becomes dictated by how popular they are on social media. It's crazy to me, but it's a real problem. We caught a man on the street interview for this podcast with a guy by the name of Zonder. While Zonder was on vacation, and man, he was so conflicted, he couldn't figure out how to disengage his mood and self-worth from social media. And, well, it was kind of ruining his trip. Obviously, right now I'm on holiday and I'm not working. It's really easy for me to spend a lot of time just looking at social media. When I see people go viral on Twitter and have, you know, like 20,000 retweets, start to think, how can I do that? How can I say that thing that everyone's going to love? How can I be popular? That's really the same thing that I was thinking in primary school, you know? How, how can I be cool? How can I be in with the in crowd and in with the popular group? But the fact of the matter is, you can only ever be yourself. You can't be someone else. And if I try so hard to be liked, it's me pretending to be someone else. It's not me being myself. So why do I let followers and likes and comments dictate my mood how and why does it affect me so much it's also making me a little bit nervous for traveling because although you know i'm going to be traveling and having a fun time my whole idea is to vlog the whole thing and, and keep it posted on instagram and twitter so that i have those memories forever but also so i can share it with an audience but you know i don't want to go out there and spend all this time working really hard to edit all this footage and get it all out there to have it dictate whether or not i'm going to be happy or sad one day you know hearing that don't you feel sorry for the guy but just the fact that he recognized he had an issue that's always they say the first step in recovery but some people don't even know that they have a problem Nick is one of Dr. Greenfield's patients. Nick, thanks for coming on this podcast with us. Can you talk a little bit about how your addiction started? What were you really trying to get out of it now that you can look back? I started doing the massive multiplayer games and stuff like that. And what it did for me is it kind of gave me a sense of instant gratification. But your mom didn't let up. How did you feel when she told you that 
you weren't interacting enough with the real world. Yeah, it, it made me feel bad, like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm not connecting with the world. Like, my mom always keeps reminding me that. So when your parents finally took the gaming system away, what happened? I felt kind of panicked and like I had to go on the computer or I'd be bored to death. For Nick, boredom turned into rage. The withdrawal symptoms were so severe, he made his parents' life a living hell. Nick's mom told us this. He'd storm around the house, following us around in our face, saying, you know, I need to get back on. I have to do this. I have to do this. And he was kind of frightening. You know, there were times when we almost felt like we had to defend ourselves. And there were times when I would just look at him and say, look at yourself. You're, you're like a crack addict. You're, you're scary. Nick's story does have a happy ending. He's playing football. He has a great relationship with his parents now. And he continues to work with Dr. Greenfield, who holds him accountable to staying offline. Now, another Nick and his friend Graham are being treated at the Last Door Recovery Center. Last Door helps people recover from substance, food, gaming, internet, and also nicotine addiction. And having been through the program, they realize that their problem, well, it goes deeper than just a simple enjoyment of the games. My addiction is based upon what I'm obsessed about and what I continue to compulsively do. So it's like it could be the gym, like it could be video games, basically is whatever I really am obsessed about. It makes me unhealthy, like I don't, I don't do physical activity, I don't shower, like I only care about one thing. So it brought to light just how bad my lifestyle actually was and that I can't continue living that way. I actually didn't really know I had a problem. I, well, like I had lost all my jobs, uh, ripped off some friends. Basically, by the end of it, I was in my room just using all day, not really moving forward in life. And my parents, they held an intervention for me. They were like, hey, Graham, you need to get some help or you're not living with us anymore. So I took that as a wake-up call. It's not just the drugs. Like I can, uh, The behaviors follow me no matter what I'm using. Like It's just all the trying to escape and not have to take on responsibility. And so, like, I just really got to monitor when, like, it, it's becoming overboard. I mean, is everything else in your life getting done? Like, if you're not showering, not, like, hooking in with your family, hooking in with your friends, like, it's obviously becoming a problem again. You need to take a look at it. Thank you, guys. What's really cool about them is that they have so much more insight than the average Internet addict. They speak like adults now, which is always refreshing. They've taken responsibility. They've recognized patterns. And they know all the tricks that the websites and the games use to keep you hooked. It would be easy to blame the UX designer or the parents or whoever else for their addiction. Dr. Montoya, do you see a lot of this blame game going on in your opioid patients? You know, I've always felt kind of the opposite. I've always felt that people with substance abuse issues either take appropriate responsibility or even blame themselves too much for their own addiction. Can you give us an example, without mentioning names, of course? I had a patient who became addicted to vaping, and she expressed regret that she decided to start this activity in the first place. But when we dug a little deeper, the culprit was probably more social pressure from other kids and the eternal need we all kind of have to fit in. Yeah, peer pressure. That used to be a kid thing, but I think social media actually contributes more to peer pressure among adults, too. I mean, even if you look at grandparents, it seems like they're always trying to one-up each other with endless pictures of their grandkids. And then parents, forever bragging on their children. I was just talking to my niece about this the other day. She was asking me if I followed a certain family on Instagram. 
And I said, yeah, I used to, but I stopped because, well, it just kind of felt to me that their life was too perfect. Here they are traveling the globe with their three perfect children, the perfect husband and the perfect wife. And we all know that life is just not like that. And I wonder how much of this perfect behavior, the peer pressure, is due to environment. Before we get to that, a quick break from one of our partners in this podcast. So in your sessions, doctor, do you ever talk about the role that maybe external factors have in causing an addiction? Generally, when I'm speaking about addiction to anyone, I like to steer away from casting any blame at all. Uh, I think it reinforces a little bit of a stigma that we still have that's associated with addiction and prevents proper care. So I just as soon not blame someone for getting the flu, and that's how I like to approach addiction. It's a physical disease with an emotional component, but there are plenty of solutions for treatment just depending on the type of addiction. So no blame, just move on. But Ryan, you have to admit, things like tactile gratification play a role in getting us hooked. That feel of the cigarette, the warmth of the alcohol, maybe that shot of heroin. But how have you seen technology hook people by a physical sensation? Now, for tech, the tactility involves more how you interact with your device. Uh, The buzzing of a phone for each notification, the haptic vibrational feedback when you 3D touch certain elements on your screen, all of these kind of make a Pavlovian response where you feel that you'll be rewarded with some sort of content, really any content, and you continue chasing that feeling forever. So one of the biggest ways I like to talk with people about the changes we've had in the way we interact with the internet is the move towards infinite scrolling. So early internet relied on pages that scrolled to some sort of finite destination. It stopped. Uh, The content ended. But infinite scrolling relies on most people's natural tendency to want to complete seeing all the content. And of course, with new alternating algorithms, you can keep scrolling forever. The content doesn't end. I know what's happened to me. I find myself scrolling and scrolling. Suddenly I stop and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm going to scroll all the way to China if I keep this up. So this is an exploitation of the same psychology used in casino slot machines. It's the idea you pull down and you're waiting for the refresh and it trains you uh, to expect a prize after every single time you do it. Now, speaking visually here, what are they focused on? What they focus their time on is designing UX or user experience to keep you engaged. So they'll use specific colors to keep you relaxed or to lose context. Another really emotionally manipulative trick is to use the color red. Physiologically, humans see red as this sort of danger color, and it initiates a sympathetic response as if we are in danger. So you see bright red everywhere on your phone to indicate how many unread emails you have or how many messages you haven't read. Uh, But some websites like Expedia or Booking.com are kind of infamous for bombarding users with red notices that they've just missed a booking or that there are only two tickets left. Oh my gosh, I can so relate. I'm never really sure if they're telling the truth. I mean, are there really only two tickets left on a flight I'm booking four months from now? And this, folks, is really where I wanted to go with this podcast. Websites, not just social media sites, but all kinds of websites, have resorted to some I guess you'd say pretty devious tactics to get you to buy now or stay on their page. 
This happens everywhere. Uh, a good example is if you're trying to close your Amazon account, there are no direct links to quit your account online. And it's only after going through this really long maze that you're finally put in touch with a live representative who is the only person who is allowed to cancel your account. It's super tricky. It's beyond slick advertising. You might even say it's underhanded. Very underhanded. Very, very underhanded, yeah. In what you've seen in your practice and in life, do you ever think that we're being played? So um, I don't want to sound too alarmist, but you have to understand just what your role is with the internet. Everything online is moving towards engagement. You are the product, not the consumer. And it's important to remember that all your information is being mined. Your searches, your likes, uh, what you spend time looking at, even videos being taken of you while you watch Netflix, okay? All of this data, all this metadata is sold to companies. And so, you know, they claim the services are free, but a lot of your personal data is the cost of using their services. You see, I find that interesting. We are the product. We are actually the product everyone wants. And our data is what everyone's after. We're not the consumer. We think we are because we're buying something. But for every one person shopping online, there are at least three or five mining for that person's data. Okay, so we've heard about what internet addiction looks like. We've seen some of the tricks that the websites and social media sites use to keep us all hooked and scrolling. Now, let's look at crawling out of the hole of the internet, this whole addiction thing. Right now, for kids, teens, adults, and celebrities, the drug of choice is that video game, Fortnite. People do get very angry. They get irritable. There have been many cases where kids have gotten violent towards their parents. In some extreme cases, they've killed the parents because they've removed that technology from them. But by no means is that the standard. If I was back at home, I'd just keep playing until I won. <laughs> I'm pretty into it right now. He went out, he got himself an Xbox, and he started playing with me. My girlfriend's asleep when my parents are asleep. Everyone's asleep here on, on the East Coast. But West Coast, it's only 9 o'clock. You know, um, I'll play with my friends for hours. Fortnite Save the World is a cooperative shooter survival game where a team fights off zombie-like husks and defends objects that they can build. Fortnite Battle Royale is a free-to-play game where up to 100 players fight in this increasingly smaller space to be the last person standing. In less than a year, Fortnite Battle Royale lured in more than 125 million players. Crazy. It earns hundreds of millions of dollars every single month. Now parents find themselves engaged in another battle, a battle to get their kids unaddicted to Fortnite. Amy's selling sons were so addicted to Fortnite, she started blogging about it. Her cry for help, well, it just opened the floodgates. Responses came pouring in from all over the world. And then she went to CBS News. They downloaded it around November, December. Around that time, I guess that's when they slowly started to disappear. Everyone's sort of struggling with the same thing. How much time do we let our children actually play this where they're not fighting and they think they've had enough time and I'm not the bad guy? Ruby Frank, one of YouTube's Eight Passengers Family Channel, tried everything to get her son away from Fortnite. Her one million viewers agreed by a really large majority. Okay, I'm just going to tell you, we have a problem in our house. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to tell you this problem, and I hope you don't judge me. But when you have a real addiction, it's, it's a gateway into some low character traits. Lying, stealing, cheating, 
manipulating. And I'm just going to be honest, maybe we just have to treat this like you would an alcoholic coming out of rehab. When you have someone who's been addicted, you don't say, okay, here's your nightly wine. <laughs> no gaming, no gaming fortnight. Not that I have anything against the game. Aha, that's the better angle. She doesn't have anything against the game. That may be the key right there. See, games and websites, they may use some underhanded tactics, but Ruby, as a parent, is not blaming them. Instead, she's doing everything she can to control the behavior in her own household. And parents around the world are taking desperate measures to free their kids from these chains of Fortnite. Dr. Montaya, do you think that this is hype or do you think it's really necessary? I'd say the most telling illustration of this is that most tech executives strictly limit the amount of time that their kids can spend online. Is it serious? You bet. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends placing limits on gaming so it doesn't take the place of adequate sleep, physical activity, and other behaviors that are just essential to our really good mental and physical health. This should go for adults, too. Dr. Greenfield, do you think it's ever going to be considered a bona fide disease? I think it's only a matter of time before we have some formal diagnosis that will include it. It's too big of an issue. And if you talk to 100 doctors practicing anywhere in the United States and perhaps anywhere in the world at this point, you'll hear 90 of them say, yes, that's a problem. All right. I have a confession to make. I'm online at least seven to 10 hours a day. As a matter of fact, this morning when I woke up, the first thing I did is I picked up my phone and I looked at my text messages and my email even before I got out of bed. I can say it's my job, but does that make me an addict? The thing is, with tech being so prevalent in all our lives, basically from the moment we wake up to our cell phone, I have a feeling personally that we may have to move the goalposts on what the definition of tech addiction actually is very soon. The true definition of an internet addict is someone who can no longer differentiate between their real physical life and their online life. In other words, who I am in a game, who I am on Facebook, what I post on Twitter, Instagram. Those are the only real moments that matter. All this other stuff that we have to do, school and work, sleeping, eating, it's just window dressing, just distractions from the real thing. I'd like to introduce you to Alex Eihein. He's known online as a modern health monk. Alex suffers from numerous physical and mental issues, but he made the decision to live a positive, healthy, honest life despite his condition. And when I say honest, I mean honest. The first date I went on with a girl that I dated for five years from 25 to 30, she pulled out her phone during like a very brief conversational pause after ordering food. And I waited for like five seconds. And I don't know if she was on Instagram or texting her friend back, but I pulled the phone out of her hand. First date, keep in mind. And I said, do me a favor, don't ever do that again. <laughs> and she gave me this, this really like, okay, psycho look. And the funny thing though is, Number one, it worked out. We ended up dating for five years. But number two, she became like a vigilante of people not using their phone while they're around their friends. That's a great story. And with close to 200,000 YouTube subscribers, I'd say you're quite the vigilante yourself. But Alex, let's say we don't have time to visit Dr. Greenfield or Dr. Montoya. We can't fly to Canada to head into the Last Door Treatment Center. What are some tangible steps that we can take right now to at least, say, limit our phone time. Let's say you're one of the conscious people where you're like, 
all right, I know I use my phone a lot. I don't like this. I don't like being around people when they're using their phone a lot. What do I do? The first thing is lower the friction, right? It's very easy to use your phone, number one, if you have it on you all the time. So what I would start doing is where I wanted to get off my phone more is I would dedicate times of the day or days of the week where I would just not bring it with me. Now, the second habit is actually to increase the friction on doing the things you don't want. So if you're on Facebook and Instagram, just start by deleting the apps. You know, it's going to give you that like, I really want to. And if that doesn't work, put your phone on airplane mode during certain work blocks. When I'm working, not only is my phone not on me, it's either at home, in another room, or it's on airplane mode with me. So I'm a big believer that don't rely on willpower and discipline. That if you've already gotten to the point where you have to just be like, no, do not click. You know, if you get to that point, you're probably already out of luck. The way you chop that friction barrier, you either increase it or decrease it, is by leaving the phone at home, putting it on airplane mode, and removing a lot of the apps. Alex, what else are we missing here? We've tried that. We've tried everything. Is there another way to just break free? Living a life that actually excites you. I know, it sounds crazy. But if you live a life that actually excites you, guess what? When you go to dinner with interesting people and you have interesting things to talk about, you're not going to want to pull out your phone. So the irony is that when you live a life that actually inspires you, you're going to be fully engaged and you're going to be fully present. You're not going to be this zombie horde of people that are walking around filling every spare minute with the phone. Live the life that excites you. You know, it may be pretty heavy. I'd like to thank all of my guests and all of you listeners for being here with this podcast. And if you're hopelessly hooked on the Internet, reach out for help. Dr. Greenfield at the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction for opioid and related addictions as part of a family treatment. You can reach out to Dr. Montaya at rjmontayaconsultants at gmail.com. If you're looking for an in-house treatment program, you can look up the Last Door Recovery Center in Canada. There's tons more all with different treatment methods. So do your research. Find the one that seems best for you or for the person that you're looking for. And finally, if you'd like more information about dark patterns or the art of creating a user experience, you can find Doug Collins at denveruxer.com. And always remember, think before you click. I'm Kim Commando. Just remember, you control your tech. It doesn't control you.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.